Well, we've had, <clears throat> excuse me, several weeks now to unpack what the Apostle John has to say about the Christian life. And I really hope that you have been challenged as we've examined uh, our life and compared it to the standard that the Apostle John lays out there. I mentioned to someone that First John is kind of like the atom. When you split it, there's just tons of power in there. And there are so many things in 1 John that are just challenging and applicable to today. <clears throat> the thing that I think is, well, frankly, kind of sad is that if we went to most churches and asked people, what is a Christian? I'm afraid we'd get very few similarities to what the Apostle John would say. What does John say is a Christian? <clears throat> He says, firstly, that a Christian is a person that believes the true truth about who Jesus Christ is. They believe the biblical revelation about the person of Christ. And number two, a Christian is a person that seeks to please God. And the phrase that he uses, we please God by practicing righteousness. Well, not only believing true truth and practicing righteousness, John adds a third component and says that Christians are people who seek to demonstrate a supernatural love for their brothers and sisters in Christ. What would you get if you stood outside most of our churches and asked the question, what is a Christian? Would truth, righteousness, and love be the key words that you hear? Or would, it, would it be Christians are people who go to church on Sunday? They follow particular habits. They get dressed up. They do whatever. And I think what happens is in our hearts, we hear these things from, jo from John in God's Word. And in our hearts, we go, yes, that's right. Christians do believe the truth about who Jesus is. Christians do practice righteousness. Christians do want to have a love that is supernatural and overflowing. And we vigorously say, absolutely, that's what biblical Christianity is all about. But there's a slight temptation that this morning you have been listening to what John has been saying about these things. And it's entirely possible that as you start to reflect upon these things personally, you see ways that you yourself do not live up to what John has said. Maybe there are things about the truth... <clears throat> in which you are undiscipled. You don't know as much as maybe you should. That's always a thing that produces some, some guilt in me. I've been a Christian for 31 years. Shouldn't I be farther along than I am? Walking with Jesus that long? You start to look at yourself and you, you're discouraged by the lack of progress. You see how little you do know the truth. You lament how little you do practice righteousness. And you realize fully how imperfect your love for the brethren is. It's entirely possible for us to be listening to John's message and discouraged by the gap between what John says we should be living and what we're really living out. Do you find yourself there? Perhaps discouraged in the midst of living the Christian life. Oh, how wide the gap between what John proclaims and how we live. 
and ask the question, what are we to do? What are we to do with this gap? Well, John addresses this issue by teaching us that there are very special blessings that come to Christians who love the brethren. We begin in 1 John chapter 3, verse 19. And I invite you to look with me at verses 19 and 20. <clears throat> John says this, We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before Him. And whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. John is teaching us the benefits of love. And specifically, John is saying that love for our faith family will assure us. Love for our faith family will assure us. Now, there's several important things to note. If you're you're reading from a literal translation of the Scripture, you'll see that verse 19 starts off with, We will know by this. So he's talking about a future opportunity. We will know, not we do know, but we will know by this. Well, what is the by this? He's referring back to everything that we talked about last week, about Cain and how Cain was not a good example of loving his brother and how love for the brethren should be a special mark of the Christian church. The world will know we are his disciples. How? By how We love one another. And so John is referring back to that, saying, By this, by the love that we have for the brethren, we will assure our hearts, and we will know. So he is assuming that in the future, there will be a time that the people he's writing to will be discouraged about how they are living. And he says, Let me tell you one thing that you can look look at, look for, look to in your discouragement. Are you manifesting a love for God's people? Because if you are, God has done that in you. Not love like your kids love pizza, but a love that is willing to sacrifice and be committed to the betterment of another person. And you have to look at this passage and go, what is going on with our heart? In verse 19 and 20, you see this word several times. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before Him in whatever our heart condemns us because God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Well, it's saying this. You may have a heart this morning that is condemning you. Say, whoa, you all dressed up on the outside, but you filthy on the inside. Man, that necktie might as well be a noose because you claim to believe this and you live like this. You you claim to be walking in the light and you're walking in the darkness. What a pitiful excuse for a Christian you are. That's not another person saying that to you. But has your heart ever condemned you? I think there's something we've got to realize. Our hearts don't condemn us for no reason. You get that? Our hearts don't condemn us for no reason. Do our hearts have ample evidence to convict us of sin? (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. But one of the good things to remember is that while our hearts don't condemn us for no reason, 
Conviction of sin is a good thing. It's just that our conscience and our heart is not infallible. Sometimes our hearts get it wrong. To illustrate this, have you ever mentally reprimanded yourself for believing something bad about someone else and then later you get all the facts and you realize you believe something about someone that was not right but you never went and checked the facts. You just went ahead and believed it. Water cooler conversation. Somebody says something and you, you, you believe the wrong thing about them. It's really easy for your heart to condemn someone else. Oh, look at him. He goes to ABC Baptist Church, living like that. And then you find out the facts, and you go, oh my goodness. I I did a character assassination of another person. And we begin to realize how easy it is for our hearts to condemn other people who don't live up to our standard. And in this passage, our heart has just turned itself on us and spewed out the bitterness that sometimes we spit on other people. And it turns around and doesn't condemn others. It condemns us. That condemnatory nature is turned inward. And I think John gives us two cures for that. Two cures. I think the first is that he tells us to look inward at our hearts and see love. He says that our hearts, we will be assured of the truth in whatever our heart condemns us and that God is greater than our heart. I think what he's saying is saying by this we will know when we look and we can see love for our brothers, that's a proof that God has been working in our life. We're to look inward and look at our love. And surely, if you are a Christian, you have times that you can look back to and see how God has gifted you to love someone supernaturally beyond what you think your capacity is. Surely, if you're a Christian, as we talked last week, you have loved someone enough out of your resources to provide for a brother or sister in a time of need? Have you not? The Bible says that's what Christian love is about, is giving to other people. And so he's saying here, by this we will know, look inward at your love for the brethren. That's not an infallible test because you're still dealing with your guilty heart, your cheating heart. But he says, look and see what God has done in your life to allow you to love people. And that inward look can encourage you. Our love is certainly far from perfect. But as Christians, we should be able to see evidence of how God has given us the grace to love other people powerfully. But secondly, and far more importantly, we're encouraged to look upward to God. Do you see what it says about God? It says, hey, listen, I know you got a condemning heart, and you have no assurance before God because your heart is beating you up. But he says, you know what? God is greater than our heart and knows all things. How is God greater than our heart? Well, let me tell you one thing that God is definitely greater than our heart. God is greater than our heart in his knowledge. God's knowledge is greater than our heart's knowledge. And that's a fearful thing and a comforting thing at the same time. Your heart may be condemning you this morning, But I guarantee you, your heart is not condemning you as much as it could. God's knowledge of your wickedness is perfect. He knows exactly where you are this morning. His knowledge is perfect. He knows when your heart has been too severe, but he also knows when your heart has given you a free pass and it's not been severe enough. God is greater than our heart. He knows infallibly 
what our heart only knows fallibly. But God is greater than our heart in a second and even more blessed capacity. God is greater than our heart in His grace. He's greater in His knowledge. He knows all things. But greater in His grace. He knows how wicked we really are. He knows how weak our love truly is. But He also knows what He has done for us in Christ. He can say, be still to the storm. And He can say, be quiet to your condemning heart. Heart, don't worry. Christ's blood has paid for that. And I think what is happening here, John is pointing us to our love in the same way in chapter 1 that he pointed us to God's light. You remember in chapter 1, verse 7? Flip back a page or two. He makes a promise to us about people who walk in the light. He says, if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. People who walk in the light have a precious promise, the forgiveness of sin. Well, flip back to chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. He says, your heart's condemning you, but by this you will know people who love the brethren have the promise of what? Assurance of our relationship with God. If you are an unloving Christian this morning, I, I, I say this as gently as possible. You should not have any assurance of a right relationship with God. If you are a curmudgeon, grouchy, grumpy Christian, you shouldn't be able to come in here and go, I'm, I'm right with God, everything's good with me. It's not. People who love the way God says to love have the blessing of God assuring our heart when our heart condemns us. Does that make sense? That's a great thing. Just as forgiveness is promised to those who walk in the light, Assurance is promised to those who love. Our confidence as Christians is not in our action or achievements. Our confidence is in His action and His words. What Christ has done for us, not how good we look, not how good we try to live. And I love this because John is here balancing the subjective and the objective truths of Scripture. Subjectively, We can look to our love for the brethren and go, you know what? God has allowed me in my action to love other people God's way. But how can a Christian love God's way? Do you have the power to do that? Can you walk out of here this morning and conjure up in your own emotions, abilities, power, God's kind of love? No way. The only reason subjectively we have the power to love is objectively because what Christ has done for us at the cross. He's given us a new nature. So he's balancing this. He's saying, don't play Oprah Winfrey psychology and just look inward and go, oh, well, my heart, it it feels good today. He's saying, no, the only reason you have a good heart is that God has ripped out your heart of stone and given you a heart of flesh. So he's balancing these truths. When God has objectively done something for us, he makes possible the things that we do. Christian love is not a human achievement. It is only something done by God. And so we must never quickly dismiss a guilty conscience. When our heart condemns us, 
We need to listen to it. But we always must analyze it in light of Scripture. When your heart is guilty, figure out why it's guilty. And then sometimes the best thing, the most sanctified thing you can do is talk back to your heart and say, listen, heart, yeah, I got it. I'm a sinner. But you know what? I'm a sinner that has been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Our mind's knowledge of what God has done on our behalf can quiet our heart's condemning talk. And so when it says you're a pitiful excuse for a Christian, you know what you should do? You should say, absolutely. When Satan tempts you to despair and tells you of your guilt within, upward you look and see him there who made an end to all of your sin. It is not possible for you to convince yourself that you're good enough for God's love. When Satan speaks to you, you speak back and say, you're absolutely right, devil. You liar. I am a miserable excuse for a Christian. But by God's grace, by his power, by his love, by his mercy, I am not what I will be either. Because God is working in me to make me like Christ. And the truth is, friends, we gather together for worship, all of us here, because you need a Savior. I need a Savior. I am a miserable sinner that left myself will be so self-righteous that no one would want to be around me. If I don't have God's law, I'll make my own up and exclude as many people as I can. Religious people typically are self-righteous people, and we like rules because we get to include or exclude who we want. And let me put it this just another way that I think is helpful. When we talk about balancing this inward look at our heart and our upward look at God, Sometimes we struggle with assurance. Perhaps you were saved at a really young age and you don't remember a whole lot about the circumstances surrounding your conversion. Sometimes if that happens really young, when you get a little bit older, you struggle a little bit with assurance. But I've heard it said that if someone asks you, um, why do you have assurance that you are a Christian? That's the question. Why do you have assurance that you are a Christian? If your response to that question is, because I you don't understand the gospel. If, you're, if your answer is, well, why do you have assurance that you're a Christian? Well, because I walked an aisle when I was seven years old. Because I, I met the preacher down here and I shook his hand. Because I prayed a prayer. Because I go to church. Because I really enjoy Sunday school. Because I don't just go to Sunday school. I go to small groups. I don't just go to small groups. I tithe because I do this, because I do that. Where is God in all of that? The only legitimate reason for a Christian to have assurance of their salvation is not because I anything. It's because God sent His Son to die for me. And if you can't find your assurance in God's action for you, how in the world can you find assurance from your own action? God tells us when we love the brethren, we can assure our hearts. And so we have to deal with our cheating hearts. And when we do, we can look back and see how God has worked in our life And this leads to great comfort for our condemning hearts. And the second truth is this, that having having a comforted heart leads to confidence before God. If you've wiped away all the negativity, all the condemning, and you are reassured, kind of negative, wipe it away, deal with all the bad stuff, the baggage, then that leads to the opportunity for our hearts to have confidence before Him. Look at verse 21. Beloved, 
if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. That's a great word. <clears throat> These are, this morning, our four points are building blocks. I, I, uh, I didn't play with these much, but I think we've got a young man here who loves his Legos, okay? When we talk about building blocks, if you're going to build a Lego city, you know what you need? You need, like, the tectonic plate of Legoland, you know, this big old flat thing that you can build your city on because it's flat. It's the building block that then you can build other things on. And what John's telling us is we have to deal with our condemning hearts, we have to focus on the truth of what God has done for us. And when we do that, when we wipe away con- condemnation and get assurance, then we can have confidence before God. And so he's building on this. And this, this idea of confidence is so important in the Christian life. We've heard it before in chapter 2, verse 28. He uses the exact same word. And he says, Now, little children, abide in Jesus, so that when Jesus appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his second coming. He's telling us here that we can have great confidence in the future when Jesus comes back if we abide. Man, that's a great thing for the future. Can we have any confidence here and now? Absolutely. That's what chapter 3 is saying. If our hearts don't condemn us, we can have confidence before him. So as we think about this word confidence and we think about what it means to have confidence before him, when do you come before him? Have any of you been before God this week? Well, listen to these verses. Hebrews 10, 19 and 20. You'll see it on the, <clears throat> on the screen here. It says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to do what? To enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Hebrews 4, 16. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Ephesians 3, 11 and 12. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. Now look at these verses. Confidence to enter the holy place. Confidence to draw near to the throne of grace. Confidence to have boldness and access with confidence to Him. How do we come before Him? In these passages, the confidence that we have has to deal with the holy place, with the throne of grace, with access to God. They're all referring to worship. Right now, you are not dressing up for the person sitting next to you on the pew. You are not singing so the person says, Man, that guy should join the choir. Though, certainly joining the choir wouldn't be a bad thing. You're not here for anyone else. There's no show. There is no show. You are here to worship before God. Before God. So how do we come before Him? We come before Him in worship. And we can have confidence and boldness to approach God in worship. We get to worship God and come before Him. But there's another way that we come before God, and that is that we come before God in prayer. And so our passage continues on in our third point by stating that bold believers pray expectantly. So far in this passage, we have dealt with condemnation and we have pushed it away and gotten assurance. And that assurance has led to a confidence in God. It says here, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And then it goes on in verse 22 
to say something incredible. Not only do you have confidence before God, but your confidence is so bold, verse 22, that whatever we ask, we receive from Him. Because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. Confidence to come before God in prayer is a precious privilege. And have you claimed this verse this week? Whatever you ask, you receive from Him. Now, the first time I ever read through the Bible, I was in middle school. And I remember, I really liked this verse. Because the middle school dance was coming up. And the Bible says, whatever you ask, you receive. That that one went down in flames. That was not not a good thing to claim. But the very first thing that you ask is, listen, if God says, whatever we ask, we get, does that mean we can manipulate prayer? I'd love a new car. I'd love to be debt-free. I'll pray for that. So we have to ask ourselves a couple questions, and the first one is, what is prayer? What is prayer? You get a lot of weird things related to prayer. Prayer is not the repetition of certain phrases. Hail Mary, full of grace. Prayer is not a wish list listing. Oh, dear Jesus slash Santa Claus, I'd like this and I'd like this, and I'd like this, and bless me this way. Prayer is not talking out loud to make us feel better. It's not some weird form of selfish psychology. The best way I've heard prayer described is the way John does it here. It is coming before God. Coming before Him. And having that access and that confidence. And when we pray, listen, Jesus demonstrates for us in the model prayer that it's okay to ask for our daily necessities. Forgive us our sins, Uh, our bread and our water, but you need more than food, water, and shelter. I love in Luke chapter 18, verse 1, one of the ways that Jesus makes prayer an important daily necessity. He says to his disciples, you ought always to pray and not faint. You ought always to pray and not faint. He's making a correlation. If you pray, you don't faint. If you don't pray... You faint. So is Jesus promising to afflict all of his followers with epilepsy if they don't pray? No, that's not it at all. He's not talking about physical fainting. He's talking about, talking about fainting in your Christian walk. Have you ever come to church and you've gotten fired up, you've been encouraged, you've gone to youth camp, you've gone to a retreat, and boy, you're, you're ready to charge hell with a water pistol. You're just ready to go. And three weeks later, you have fainted in your Christian walk. You know why you fainted? What would Jesus say? You haven't prayed. You haven't prayed. You have not stayed before God in a way that He can bless you. So pray, and your Christian walk will be more consistent. Pray, and you won't faint. So prayer is coming before God and praying for all the things that we need. And so we have to know not just that we do need to come before Him, but how we're supposed to come before him. And then we ask the question. I just asked, can we manipulate prayer? There is no way. And so I'm going to give you a couple scripture, three scripture references in machine gun fashion. You can write them down and you can look them up later, but I will read them for you. John chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. John 14, 13 and 14. Jesus says this, Whatever you ask in my name, I will do 
that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So can you manipulate prayer? No, because whatever you pray, you have to ask how? In Jesus' name. So is Jesus interested in you getting a nice shiny BMW? I don't know. Ask it in his name, you'll find out, because he'll answer that prayer. John chapter 15, verse 7. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Can we manipulate prayer? No. The prayer that Jesus answers is the prayer of a person who abides in him, who takes his word seriously. And then 1 John chapter 5, verse 14 1 John 5, 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Again, can we manipulate prayer? No. We have to ask in his name. We have to ask while abiding in him. And we have to ask how? According to his will. According to his will. And what I love here is in verse uh, 22. John specifically lays two conditions upon this bold prayer, this expectant prayer. He says that we do two things according to this passage. Verse 22, whatever we ask, we receive from him. Why? Because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. I love this. Two things. Keeping his commandments. Number two, doing the things that are pleasing in his sight. What's the difference between these? Think about this with my kids. What's the difference for my kids in obeying my commandments and doing the things that are pleasing to me. Well, my commandments are those things explicitly that I tell them, make your bed. Now, take out the trash. Help your, don't talk back to your mother. <laughs> you know, Clean up around this house. Help, help here. Those are commandments. Those are things that you know explicitly you're supposed to do. But you know what? One of the things that's great about being a parent is sometimes you don't tell your kids what to do. And what do they do? They do the right thing. You don't tell them to take out the trash. And they just do it. Why? Not because they were commanded to, but because they spontaneously want to do the things that please their parent. Here's what's so disturbing in the Christian life. There are so many people, they want to know what the list is that they have to do for God, and they're not going to do one cotton-picking thing more than that. They're interested in obeying His commandments, but spontaneous obedience to just do the things that please God? Uh Uh-uh. If he doesn't say it, if it's not in my job description, ain't doing it. And the Bible says the answered prayer comes from people who are not trying to do the lowest common denominator list of things that God wants. But beyond the things that he lists, they just out of their hearts want to obey God. So here's the question for us, church. If you don't experience answered prayer, where has your obedience gone wrong? Are you praying in his name? Are you praying abidingly? Are you praying for his will? Are you obeying his commandments and living to please him? And here's the thing that's great about this conversation about prayer. If we are keeping his commandments, if we are loving, if we're practicing righteousness, if we're really living that way and doing his will, then you have placed yourself into a position where God can bless and answer prayer. But realize, if you're doing all these things, You're not doing it because you're capable of it. You're doing it because God has empowered you to live that way. And so, fourth and finally, John continues on with this theme of obeying God's commandments. It says we obey God's commandments and do the things that are pleasing to him. 
And in verses 23 and 24, in essence, John is saying that when we are loving the brethren, when, we, when love is out there and we are obeying God, that love is the entire, it, it lubricates the entire process of abiding in God. If abiding in God is a machine, love is the oil, it's the lubrication that makes this happen. And so in verse 23, John provides a very succinct summary of what the commandment is. We obey his commandment and do what's pleasing him. Verse 23, this is his commandment. He lays it out there, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. He gives us three things. Believing in the name of Christ, loving one another just as he commanded us, obeying his commandments. These are the three things that John has said are tests of eternal life. Do we believe the true truth? Do we supernaturally love the brethren? Are we practicing righteousness by obeying his commandments? And according to John, you cannot truly believe without loving or obeying. If you say that you believe, where's your love and where's your obedience? This is John's most essential and fundamental message. So we have to ask ourselves if this is his commandment, to to believe, to love, to obey. How in the world do we do all this? How do we work up the power, work up the confidence, work up the ability to get this done? And verse 24 tells us. The one who keeps his commandments, I love this, abides in him. And guess what? Not only do we abide in God, this verse says he abides in us. and He abides in him. We know by this that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. How do we do all this? The short answer is by the Holy Spirit. This is the first explicit mention of the Holy Spirit in John's uh, first letter. But the Holy Spirit's all over the book. And one of the things that I find troubling in our proclamation of the gospel is that as we think about the Christian life, there is a temptation for us to go back to Calvary and go, we need to go back to Calvary. We need to go back to the cross to understand the Christian life. Okay, but just real quick. Right after the cross, you want to be that kind of disciple? You remember what the disciples did after the cross? They hid. They, they were scared. They ran away. Well, maybe we don't need to go to Calvary for our conception of the Christian life. Maybe we need to go to the resurrection. Resurrection is a great truth. We celebrate it on Easter. But what did the disciples do after the resurrection? Nothing. They went to class. I mean, the book of Acts says that for 40 days, Jesus met with them and, and taught them. When did the disciples begin to do something? When was there power for their Christian life? At Pentecost. Don't, don't cut your church history in half by just going to the cross. The cross is the precursor to Pentecost and to his disciples being empowered to live for him. Pentecost doesn't happen without the resurrection in Calvary. But the Christian life doesn't happen without Pentecost. We don't want to be disciples cowering in a corner, scared of the culture, afraid of what we're going to say that might offend people, and be faithful to the Christian message. We have to remember in John 16, 7, Jesus said this to his disciples, it is good for you that I go away. Now, if you could hop in a time machine right now, and you're a pious believer... I'm willing to bet that you probably would love to go back and see the feeding of the 5,000. See Jesus walk on water. Be there when he came out of the tomb. You know what? Jesus doesn't wish that for you. He wishes for you to take full, uh, to appropriate fully the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus is telling us that us today who have never had the opportunity to gaze upon Christ with our eyes are in a much more blessed and important position than even the very disciples who walked with him. You know why? Because he's given us the Holy Spirit. And he eventually gave the disciples the Holy Spirit. And it's the Spirit who makes Christ's work effective. The Spirit isn't here to put on a show. The Spirit's not even here to get any fanfare for himself. The Spirit is here to make Jesus real in our lives. His whole, mes- his whole message and purpose is to make much of Christ. And so how do we know that we have him? He says, listen, we know. Because he abides in us by the Spirit that he's given us. So how do we know? Well, we must be defined as spiritual person. A Christian is a person who has the Holy Spirit. So regardless of what some people teach, that at one point you become a Christian and at another point you become a Holy Spirit Christian, you can't be a Christian without the Holy Spirit. Jesus gives it to you when you become saved. And when we talk about being a Christian, it's not just good for us to be formal, moral members of the church. We have to be altogether different because the Spirit is in our life. We're not just a little bit better people than the world. We are are just people with weird and eccentric and different habits. We are people who are Holy Spirit people. So how do we know what does a spiritual person look like? Not an exhaustive list, but just a couple things I would list for you. Do you have an awareness that the Holy Spirit is working in your life? When we mention the word Holy Spirit, is that just a dot, 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 cricket chirp, cricket chirp, cricket chirp for you? Or when we talk about the Holy Spirit's power, you see ways that the Holy Spirit is working in power in your life. Are you interested in spiritual things? Or does your interest in spiritual things um, end whenever the sermon or the Sunday school lesson ends? Is there any conviction of sin in your life? Are you aware of sin? You, you have not won that battle yet. Are you convicted of sin? Do you have a desire to obey? We just talked about not just obeying his commandments, but doing the things that are pleasing to him. Is there fruit in your life? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. This morning, John says to those with condemning hearts, you need a savior. But he also says, you need a spirit. And God through the work of His Son, through the work of His Spirit, offers you the power to obey. He offers you the power to love in a way that this world will not understand. And in a gracious and awesome way, He offers us the opportunity to have confidence before Him. Do you have it? Do you have confidence When your heart condemns you, can you speak back to it? Do you know the comfort of the Holy Spirit in your life? Oh, brethren, if you don't, I hope that you'll get to know Him. And I hope this morning as we offer our invitation that you will come and speak with one of our pastors about what it means to know Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day and we thank you for this word and we pray that you will help us not just with our minds to affirm truth but to live it out. And so as we have the opportunity to listen to this song, this video for our invitation, that you will help us to understand that, Lord, we are pitiful sinners. 
but you are a good, awesome, and gracious Savior. And we pray these things in the strong and powerful name of Christ. Amen.